0: category because that's what that is, 39,000, where's it
1: going?
2: I mean, can you play the clip in 2012 and 13 when it was at 200 and everybody was laughing at me on CNBC every time I would talk about Bitcoin? Um, Where is it going? It's probably going to 100, then 150, then 200,000. In what period? I don't know. Five years, 10 years, but it's going there. And the reason is because every time you see all of this stuff happening, it just reminds you that, wow, our leaders are not as trustworthy and reliable as they used to be. And so just in case, we really do need to have some kind of, you know, insurance we can keep under our pillow that gives us some access to an uncorrelated hedge. And it's going to eventually transition to something much more important, but for right now you're just getting all these data points that prove this thing. It's just the fabric of society is frayed and until we figure out how to make it better it's time to just have a little uh, schmuck insurance on the side and everybody's running in it's just an incredible thing i could never have imagined it
0: <laughs> good to be a schmuck i guess if you got if you got
1: Hey, freaks. It's your boy, Matt O'Dell. Sorry about that little technical mishap we had there. Um, Thank you for joining us on the rebroadcast. Um, This is Citadel Dispatch, Episode 4. I'm joined by my friends uh, Janine and Ben the Carmen. Um, I'd like to welcome them here to the show. I want to thank all the freaks for joining us live. Uh, Without you, we couldn't do this show. And it's been a pretty crazy week. So the topics I want to cover mostly, the focus I really want to have here is on censorship, privacy, and open source software, because I think these last few weeks have really highlighted to a lot of people what the three of us um, have been talking about a lot lately, which is the need for more censorship-resistant tools and platforms uh, available to individuals. Um, So with that being said, um, let's get this party started uh janine do you want to give a brief intro um on how the freaks uh with what your focus has been in the last few years
3: yeah hi everyone uh for anyone who doesn't know me i'm an investigative journalist and privacy researcher um uh middle of last year i started a newsletter called uh this month in bitcoin privacy so if you want to specifically know about anything uh related to privacy in bitcoin that's what i focus on um i also do other work but that's mainly the bitcoin stuff i also have a shout out to uh john Spary for reminding me uh worked on wallets recovery with uh re- with um uh blah. <laughs> i just <laughs> my brain is a bit dead right now um Yeah. Worked on wallets recovery, um, which helps with, uh, uh, which, which helps with, um, if you have issues like importing your, uh, your keys or your seed to other wallets and are struggling with that, it kind of explains why that's the case and what, which wallets are compatible with each other.
1: That's great. And, um, no, don't don't worry about being a little frazzled here. I think we all are, um, after my little technical issue there. Um, ben, how should people know you?
4: Uh, hey guys, I'm Ben. Uh, I've been in Bitcoin for um, like three years now, and I've been doing Bitcoin development for about two years ish now. Started at like Bitcoin Core, um, just basic stuff, and then worked at Wasabi for a while, and then for the past year, I've been at Shered doing uh, discrete log contract stuff.
1: um thank you for introducing yourself i just put the link to this month in bitcoin privacy uh janine's most recent uh newsletter uh into the comments um everyone should go check that out i really have been enjoying them so thank you for that janine um i guess let's just jump right into it uh we had the sitting president of the united states got removed from uh from Twitter completely forever. Uh, And I think all of a sudden, people are starting to realize that if it can happen to one of the most powerful people in the world, then maybe it is actually happening to much, uh, you know, much more vulnerable people uh, all the time. And uh, let's I, I think I think I think it would be good to shed some light on on what this particular issue is this idea of deplatforming this idea that that you can basically remove someone from an online platform and and what are the implications of of that for us going forward.
4: Yeah, it's been a real crazy week because it wasn't just like the present it was like lots of uh other things like Ron Paul's like page got removed off Facebook and like Seeming and like some, like, uh, even some like stuff from the left got removed that, like, seemingly was unrelated to Trump. So it's been like a huge purge from social media. And it's like, I don't know, I think like Gab and like Macedon have been getting huge influxes, which is good to see.
1: So, um, the the issue is bigger, I think. Than so, so, so I'm. i gonna. How do? How can we unpack this? Let's unpack this a little bit because we had, we literally had Parler, right? Which is one of these competing Twitter-like um, services. I guess it was. It was a relatively new service. Uh, it had, you know, it it was it was a very amateur hour type of operation they seemed to be having over there. They didn't have very good security uh, policies in place. Um, but besides all of that amazon aws uh removed parlor from their service they deplatformed them from the actual cloud servers you know amazon's cloud servers are running a, a large majority of the internet um and parlors operations were part of that and they removed parlor from there and then uh, before that happened apple and google removed them from the app store so we have we have multiple different things happening right we have um, we have like platforms on platforms on platforms, right? So so like for, so, so you have the individual user who is being hosted on a platform. You have that platform, which is then also is being hosted on the cloud server somewhere. And then you have the actual app distribution, which is going through these controlled wall gardens. Um, and wherever you have the central point of failures is where you, t- you tend to see pressure happen. Um, so let's unpack it even further than that. Janine, now she's no longer having cat problems. Janine, why is free speech important? Why is the ability for anyone to to interact, um, interact freely online so important?
3: Yeah, just to insert really quickly, um, I blanked on Rodolfo Novak's name because I was staring at my cat about to push something off of a bookshelf. <laughs> so uh, that is fixed now. Um, But yeah, so I actually gave a talk in December um, called Financial Cancel Culture about the link between freedom of speech and money and how censoring financial access um, and also just limiting financial access in general can affect um, speech. And so, yeah, I definitely think that in terms of... um, recent events but also i mean i i covered mainly events that happened just in november and december in my presentation and there was quite a lot um i focused on that because there was just so many examples that i could give um obviously the most prominent one that most people know about is uh when wikileaks uh published the diplomatic cables and then Ah, uh, you had various payment processors and even banks uh, kicking them off, not for any real uh, explicit reason in most cases, uh, and not saying you no know, whether there was any pressure, but I think it's reasonable to assume that there was pressure at a very high level to do so. Um, but even if there wasn't, um, that it, without Bitcoin existing i could I think I could reasonably say that WikiLeaks itself may not. Have continued to exist after that point. Um, Or at least it would have been significantly harder because they're at the moment, I think they're still relying on um, basically other institutions to accept donations on their behalf, which, you know, that works, but it's not the best. Um, So in terms of journalism, which is my focus, um, I definitely see the value in in having a money that is censorship resistant because like WikiLeaks is, and a lot of other people now are skilled in, you know, finding ways to at least make their platform censorship resistant. There's a lot of different methods for that, that don't have anything to do with blockchains despite many attempts at that in recent years. Um, But a lot of them haven't really looked at money. And I think, you know, example, like WikiLeaks but also others, Um, they're the only people who have really considered that and actually been willing to experiment with things like Bitcoin, which is, uh, you know, back in 2010 was so much smaller and that was, you know, it's always this rumor that uh, part of the reason that Satoshi went quiet is because one of the last messages he he here they posted was about the uh, hornet's nest being kicked in terms of WikiLeaks possibly accepting donations in Bitcoin. Um, And weirdly enough, I still think that a lot of Bitcoiners have that fear of even talking about uh, the case or trying to link Bitcoin with that in any way, which is unfortunate because I feel like, you know, if one organization, if you can't even talk about an organization accepting Bitcoin, is Bitcoin really censorship resistant Uh, if you're afraid about that?
1: Yeah, I mean I, I, I think that's an excellent point. And and the you you touched on something that was that that is really key there. I mean, for us as Bitcoiners, which is that oftentimes the financial aspects are what gets squeezed first. Um and if if if, if you're able to defund a particular movement, you're able to prevent them from raising funds, you're able to prevent maybe a independent media uh personality or individual from monetizing their work um then you're able to essentially censor their speech even if you're not stopping the specific speech because you're making it so that they um they're not able to fundraise they're not able to support their operations uh but this is a a phenomenon that we, that we've seen growing more and more over the years i mean most recently i i think a, a big element of, uh, the financial censorship side, um, has been, I think it was called operation choke point, which was against, I believe, sex workers and, uh, marijuana businesses. Um, and, and these type of businesses are, are, and and you see the trend here, right? The trend is, is you basically put a business or an entity in a bad light. You, you, you equate WikiLeaks with, with terrorism or. Uh, foreign governments, you equate marijuana and, and sex working with, you know, illegal distasteful activities, and then you're, it's easier for you to go and censor them. um, And, and that's exactly the MO we've seen um, on these speech platforms. So, so it comes down to what is the solution here um, as our, as our lives get more and more digital and is, is that solution really uh, as some have said, like competing platforms, right? So if Stripe censors you, do you go to cash app or if twitter censors you do you go to a gap alternatively we've seen that because of the way our 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 tech situation is set up our tech infrastructure is set up there's so many choke points that prevent those companies from even competing in the first place so i would argue and i i think you guys would tend to agree with me that the real the real solution here is some type of tech-based solution we we basically need networks and protocols and tools um that that can't be censored by an individual whether you like it or not uh and that's the only real way to to protect speech and or, and to tangentially to protect privacy i would say is the same
4: thing um ben what are your thoughts here i completely agree like um i mean i think like this week kind of proved how much like competing platforms like isn't really the solution because like I think mean, there's like that picture from like fox news of like 20 different platforms that banned trump and then like we saw like the actual twitter platforms you know like uh parlor like it got delisted from both app stores and aws stopped hosting them so like i mean you can try to create a separate platform but it's still like it's still another central point of failure that you're relying on it's just a different central point of failure so like building an actual decentralized alternative where you are actually have like censorship resistance and not just relying on some other party is a much better alternative and um, I think we're people are recognizing that a lot more now and there's hopefully some people are waking up and realizing we, can, we need to build these like censorship resistant platforms or protocols uh, for things like other than money
1: um, so I think like an interesting way of framing it uh, is 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 this idea like the, when you when you see this, this censorship coming from a uh, a, a central body. Um, it, it tends to be, the playbook tends to be, to do two things, to identify critical participants um, and then pressure those participants. So I, I think when you're looking at tools um, that are trying to help further the goals of censorship resistance, um, I think like the two main things that we can benefit from is, is making it more difficult to identify the specific participants. And even if you do identify the participants, make it so each participant doesn't have, you know, any kind of real significant power over the others. Um, otherwise you can find one and you, and you can pressure them. Um, and so a key element here is free open source software, because if, if, if we do not have free open source software, um, then you always have some kind of centralized company Ah, uh, sitting here and operating um, whatever tool you're using, such as Twitter, and that company can get pressured. Um, I was hoping, Janine, that you could uh, help enlighten the freaks. You know why why open source is so much more powerful, uh, and and why is it why it's basically a, a, a absolutely essential uh, for us moving forward. You know, or if you disagree with me.
3: Uh, well, one thing I thought was interesting, I don't know if you guys um, looked at the notice that BitGo received that um, you know they had uh, basically violated U.S. sanctions because they had supposedly uh, hosted wallets for users that were connecting from the banned countries like Iran and Syria and such. Um, I thought that was interesting because that happened around, or that notice was published within days of a a similar notice that was in the complete opposite direction from GitHub, uh, which for anyone who didn't see in 2019, there was this controversy because GitHub was suddenly limiting um, access to developers from Iran, and they were citing U.S. sanctions as the reason. And interestingly, um, very, unless, I can't remember the date when it was posted, it was the last week or so, but Uh, They posted an update saying that they had actually applied for a license to be able to offer their services in Iran. And the argument that they gave was that they basically said that the freedom of information benefits of making their services available for developers there should it was greater than the need to impose to basically deny it on the basis of imposing economic sanctions, which I thought was really interesting because basically was saying, you know, the, the, the value of, um, you know, offering these services and having people from Iran contribute to open source software was uh, was outweighed, or it, no, it, it outweighed the, um, the desire for the government to restrict that. So I thought that was interesting that those two things happened at the same time, even though they went in completely opposite directions.
1: Right with GitHub, they actually got a they got approved, right?
3: Yeah, so they they yeah yeah their license got approved, and they say that they're going to apply for licenses for other countries. At the moment, they just have Iran. Um, but yeah, it's unfortunate that the same argument can't also be made for money. But uh, obviously, money is perceived as much more political than simply software. Uh, hosting, unfortunately, but uh, I would argue well, you were that surprised, they're very right? similar. Um, I w- I was surprised about Bitgo, or I was surprised about GitHub.
1: No, Bitgo, what didn't surprise me. We can get back to that, but but the the you know uh, the reversal on GitHub allowing Iranians. I mean, I I was pleasantly surprised at that, but I I did not. I don't think that's something that we can really expect going forward, right? It caught me off guard.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I wasn't expecting it. I mean, cause as everyone should know by now, GitHub is owned by Microsoft. Um, so I'm guessing that the reason they were able to do that was maybe Microsoft stuck its giant foot in there and said that they wanted to support it. I have no idea what stance Microsoft, uh, may have taken in those kinds of negotiations, but I mean, it is good <laughs> that, um, that that argument that they made was successful because um, I didn't even know that I didn't I wasn't even aware that you could actually apply for a license <laughs> to basically ignore the sanctions under certain circumstances but um, I was surprised that it sounds like they made the argument that um, it's it's important for uh, spreading e- uh, intellectual freedom or something.
1: No yeah I mean 100% great to see that Um, you did have, you do have a good point there that it kind of hits both ways, right? These big companies, it's, it's more likely in, in some, in some ways, it's more likely that they can, you know, bend the rules in their favor, um, and get a carve out for themselves for Iranian users in this case. Um, but then other times I, I, they're almost bigger targets. Um, and, they will be more likely to have to comply because, uh, because they are one of the largest companies in the world. Um, and, and the governments have more leverage over them. Uh, like sometimes I want, you see like these smaller, a lot of times you'll see like these smaller startups and they might not do any kind of geo-blocking. And then once they get bigger, then they have to. Um, just to go back to BitGo, that's really interesting because what we're seeing here is is basically it was a non-custodial wallet with BitGo. It was a non-custodial Bitcoin wallet. They weren't holding anyone's Bitcoin. Um, but they were providing uh, infrastructure, and uh, th- so they knew the IP addresses of their users. And and one of the issues is is using IP addresses um, to mass classify users is that you can use a VPN to you know uh, fake an IP address or have a different IP address um, located in a different country. So what happens after that is what we usually see is justification of KYC, which is which is mass data collection of users to make sure um, that the user is who they say they are and to censor appropriately. Um, ben, you've been you've been awfully quiet over there. Uh, you you want to talk to the freaks a little bit about why you know wh- why KYC concerns us so much?
4: and it says like kyc is like a it's a double-edged sword where like one you're like you know you're giving up this info that now like um you like you don't want to give up like if you're just giving this info to bitco or whatever like they can use this information against you and like you shouldn't need to do that it's a huge hassle and you're like putting yourself up for like risk because like we've seen countless times where you know bitco could get hacked and now they're selling this data on the market like what we saw with ledger earlier this uh like a few months ago where now like there's just a huge uh entire database of people that own bitcoin and you know they have their like their house address and phone number and full name and like if you had something like that where it's if you're doing even full kyc or you're giving up a something like a driver's license or a social security number now you can be at risk for like someone's stealing your identity and then someone could, you know, open up credit cards in your name and like really screw things up. And like, it's a huge problem in America. I think like a quarter of Americans get their identity stolen in their lifetime, which is utterly ridiculous. And like that's thousands of hours that people are spending, not only like getting wasted by like having to deal with that, but then like that like if they don't catch it, they could actually like ruin parts of people's lives. And like these people have no reason to be able to give up this information. Like, you know, I should be allowed to use Bitco services if me and Bitco want to use it, but uh, you know, some people don't like that.
3: Yeah, I think there's kind of two aspects to KYC that are harmful. The one is uh, the one aspect is for people who even have information relevant to KYC to begin with, which is that you know, once you enter that, you're as you said, you're at risk of Um, identity theft, you're at risk of things like uh, the ledger data breach happening where, um, you know, potentially thousands to hundreds of thousands of people, um, if they didn't use, um, you know, if they didn't obfuscate their identity somehow or obfuscate their uh, shipping location, whether that's a, uh, in a lot of cases, it was probably a home address, um, then you basically open yourself up to anyone with the motivation to come and find you with the knowledge that, you know, you have some interest at least in a uh, volatile uh, asset. Um, The other aspect of KYC is that from the start, it blocks out anyone who doesn't have the identity uh, documents necessary to participate in the system by going through the KYC process. Like if they don't have it, they don't even get the choice of whether to participate because they don't they, uh, whether to make that, um, take those privacy risks, they just don't have the option. So that's also an issue. Um, and so, you know, at, on one hand, that means, you know, you're, you know, financially censored in the sense, and your speech, in effect, can be censored as well, if you're not if you not even allowed to join these platforms, because you don't have the right documents. Um, but then also, you can be censored if you say something that is not acceptable to that platform and they don't want to host it anymore and they kick you off
4: yeah like that it's like a huge deal where like now like say if i i don't know if if you're a sex worker and you have to and you want to use like someone's service like like if i'm like want to have a wallet at bitcoin it shouldn't matter like what my job is like but if you have to like submit an id they could like do some cross check and be like oh, this person does this job that we deem inappropriate and now they block you from the service, which like they shouldn't be like, they shouldn't have to know who I am and like they shouldn't need to be able to do all that stuff. Like it's it'd be so much better for like both parties if they could just ignore that and just like offer the service anonymously. Well, I mean, that's the thing,
1: right? Is like all these arguments are made uh, that it's to protect the users um, or at least we often hear that. Uh, but ultimately, Um, this data collection is ineffective, uh, because criminals can buy, um, KYC information, fake information. They can steal fake information. Um, all that information find usually it, it, you should assume that it's going to leak, um, because companies have hard time securing that information. Um, so, so really it's. Not only does it put users in in massive risk in terms of their private data, uh, but it's not even effective because it creates this loop where that private data is such a honeypot um, that it can then be used to circumvent any kind of uh, compliance benefits that they so-called compliance benefits that they could possibly get out of it that they <laughs> pretend they can get out of it. Ideally, if we were talking about protecting the user, that 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 service that company that tool should know as little as possible about them Um, compounding that on top of that we have a internet model a, a monetization model on the internet that that is the main monetization model that's gotten widespread use is really um the monetization of user data and advertising to them so you know many of our most profitable companies not only are are required by regulation to collect intimate data on us, but they actually have an incentive system in place to to make money by collecting additional data on top of that. Um, and then I, I I don't even know where to put this, but uh, Americans know about the Equifax leak, which that Equifax hack, where we weren't even customers. they were just a third party company that just uh, you know automatically takes data on every single American. Um, so we just have these systems in place that uh, that prioritize data collection over data protection, uh, and it's just us. Um, so I mean, an- another thing that's been happening. Um, so I mean, a-, a key element here, I think, is privacy. I think I think it it all it all comes together. You can't really have proper censorship resistance um, without without privacy, uh, without some elements of privacy, and you can't really I guess you could get privacy without censorship resistance um, maybe, but I think I feel like if you have privacy, then you're almost you're you're almost censorship resistant inherently. Uh, what do you guys think about that relationship between privacy and censorship resistance?
4: i'd agree with that like if you don't know who i am like it's a lot harder to censor me like based off like like it well it's impossible to censor me based off who i am like you can't if you don't know my job is you can't censor me because i'm a sex worker because you know i deal drugs or whatever so you'll, you'll always get that inherent censorship now if they could do like extra analysis but you're still like always enhancing that and um i mean that's always just gonna be a net benefit
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of um, if if you think of privacy as, you know, if if you first do threat modeling and figure out what your threats are in privacy and because I think that's part of the problem is that and it's something I'm going to kind of talk about um, for the Bob meetup, but I can go into the gist here, which is that uh, I kind of am annoyed with the way that People, a lot of people respond to me when I say I'm researching privacy or I'm a privacy researcher because usually the first question I get is why? Why does privacy matter? And I think that has to do with the fact that people don't think of privacy as information security. Um, in, I mean, information security is a lot broader than just privacy. It's also about authentication and integrity, um, but. Privacy is a big part of that, and if you know, if someone calls themselves a security researcher, you don't you don't see them getting asked why is security important. And so, if people started thinking about privacy as a strategy for security, then I think they would understand that that question is kind of weird um, to get asked. Um, because, yeah i i I definitely think that having i think you have to have some privacy in terms of i actually use the 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 german term uh, because in in germany um they don't have privacy really in the constitution they have what's called informational self-determination and that's the idea that you should be able to decide who has access to your information or at least have knowledge of who has access that's actually in their constitution and i find that a lot better in terms of explaining to people what privacy is, like the scope of it, because if it's about, you know, volunteerism and making, being able to make decisions about who has access to your information and having control over it, then I think people will appreciate privacy a lot more if it's framed in that way. And not just I'm hiding stuff, because that's how most people I think see privacy is that you have to, you know, you have to go dark and, uh you know interact with people in a very limited way but i think that that's a very that's like a narrow section of what i think privacy means
1: i yeah so i mean that is that's a that's definitely a very a very good point uh that i've struggled with myself is is do people actually does the average person care enough? I mean, I, I think i I think the answer is overwhelmingly no. I think and I think ultimately, um in our society, we've kind of found ourselves in this weird situation where privacy is actually the default is the opposite uh, unfortunately and 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 that wasn't always the case before. it's it's mostly tech enabled. Um, our, our, our world has become more and more digital. Um, and you know, I mean, a perfect example is, is the status quo was if you spoke in your house about something, um, it was only heard by like you and your family members and whoever was in the house now for a large number of people around the world, um, they have internet connected microphones that they plugged in themselves, uh, to provide them additional conveniences. Um, yeah. so that's not, it's no longer the status quo, right? It's, it's, it's almost the, the people who are seeking privacies are is the outliers. You have to like go out of the way.
3: Yeah. There were on that subject, there was a very interesting talk at CCC, um, about, uh, I think it was specifically about Amazon's a little, no, I think it was Siri actually. And. Yeah, a lot of people they kind of see Apple as oh, I mean, actually the researcher who presented justified her continued use of Siri personally, as to say Apple's business model isn't um, isn't to sell your data, and that's I would debate that. I would say it's true in the larger context of all the other companies who are doing and creating similar products but i would definitely recommend watching that because a lot of people think oh the the alexa only turns on or is engaged when you give the call the call phrase like um hey alexa or hey siri or whatever and it turns out that's not the case um she actually tested it on her own house and family and it was getting triggered by like random laughter random conversation that you couldn't even hear in the recording um so if anyone I hope no one has those I would never have one of those devices um but anyone who does you might want to check that out because it is picking up a lot more than you think it does
4: I think I think what a lot of people don't understand too it's it's not like uh you know you have your assigned FBI agent listening on your Alexa device it's like these companies have like some of the smartest people in the world working on like data collection and data analysis so like your Alexa is just like streaming some data to the Amazon servers and it's going through is like this complex thing they wrote, that's doing an analysis and that's where you're like losing like privacy and other aspects like that. It's not like, you know, even if like quote unquote, the government doesn't care about you, like you're still losing something here and like, it's still something you should be protecting that like, you know, Amazon doesn't need this data from you and you have no reason to give it to them.
1: So, I mean, there's a there's a good point there in terms of Amazon telling uh, individuals that it's only um, collecting information under a specific set of circumstances. Um, that brings us back to the open source software uh, conversation, in that we can have tools uh, at our disposal that allow us to to easily prove and verify that they're doing what they're doing. Um, unfortunately the status quo is the exact opposite. I mean, you said there uh, that Siri, you know, uh, Apple says they protect my privacy and it's their business model to protect my privacy. There is no way that any of us can prove that or verify that.
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I mean, a big a big reason of why those kinds of devices concern me is um, if anyone's not familiar with kind of the US uh, statute, uh, There's a principle called the third party doctrine that um, I've especially been following a lot in my newsletter uh, when it comes to um, like the EFF, looking at the lack of privacy protection and transparency with fintech apps, including some that have to do with cryptocurrency. And the third party doctrine in the U S basically says that uh, if you if you give data to a third party, that could be your friend, it could be a business, but in general, it gets applied to instances with businesses, basically says that if you give your data to a third party, you have a decreased or in some cases, no expectation of privacy anymore because you've like surrendered that privacy to someone else. And so what scares me about, I, I haven't seen whether this has been applied anywhere, but I am afraid of the idea that if you have these devices in your house that at some point someone's going to make the argument that because you have you know surrendered the privacy of your conversations in your own home and other people can access that 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 decreases your like the the there's this assumption that within the home there is uh you know it's different on like public streets and such but in the home that is considered like the gold standard of places where you should expect to have privacy. And so if that is then stripped away uh, what other, what other place is there anymore?
1: Yeah. I mean, you could take that argument uh, pretty much all the way down, right? Uh, especially now that we have so much of our lives are, are connected to the internet all the time. I mean, most people are walking around with a phone in their pocket. Um, they uh, have apple watches as we said you know they have these uh these voice assistants when you're walking down the street there's cameras everywhere um so yeah the status quo is 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 lack of privacy and you basically have to seek it out and i think that is one of the many issues that we have in terms of a society um that's trying to be a a beacon of free speech and a beacon of, of personal rights um, I, I think we've ended up very far from that, and there's there's a lot of progress that needs to be made there. Um, I wanted to cover this this recent this this these. So we have free open source software allows us to verify that we are that these tools are doing what they say they're doing. Um, we have individuals that need to actually care to use those tools. And then we have the overwhelming set of individuals that don't realize. And I think ultimately what happens is as we see our society become more and more um, anti-privacy by design, is people are gonna get burned, right? And we're gonna see worse and worse data leaks. Like, I think um, if you look if you look at the scale of, of instances we've had and, and leaks we've had and hacks we've had, um, and and privacy compromises. We've had massive privacy compromises. It gets worse and worse um, as the years go by because just by design, there's more information available out there. You know, the Ring camera system that Amazon has in front of everyone's house is a relatively new uh, is a relatively new device in terms of, of network effects. Yet now you're starting to see it all throughout the suburbs um, in America what happens when those cameras start the implications of stuff like those cameras. And I think what happens is people will get burned. um, And then once they get burned, we, we, it's up to us as, as privacy advocates uh, it's up to us to have those tools ready for them and the education ready for them so that when they're a motivated individual um, they can improve their own situation. Would you guys agree with that?
4: I I completely agree with that. Mm -hmm. It's also like in a, kind of an incentive problem too of creating these open source solutions because you know as an open source developer you're not generally not getting paid to do that and uh you know amazon's just going to hire thousands of people to create a better product so like it really really does have to come from like the actual user to want to 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 want to seek the privacy because like the open source solution won't probably be the better product initially because you know they don't have multi-million dollar companies behind them Any thoughts there, Janine?
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, um, I mean, I, cause on the subject, I actually have been reading a book um, called The Making and Maintenance of o- Open Source Software by Nadia Agabal. Um I haven't finished it yet, so I can't do a review, but I was generally really excited about it because basically she studied um, how open source communities function and how open source software is built And one of the things that she starts off with um, at the beginning is kind of dispelling the notion that like, yes, open source software, ideally, anyone can contribute anytime it has like a wide contributor base. But in in practice, um, she actually split up, um, she kind of defined like the different types of projects that you can have um, based on some having like really high user growth versus very low contributor growth. So you don't have tons of contributors for for most open source products, um, projects, they have very, very few contributors, um, in some cases only one. Uh, but then some of them can have a really high user base. And so I mean, in Bitcoin, I think we're especially sensitive to that, because we have this we care about consensus and about who's able to make changes to the code. And so um, Bitcoin is actually mentioned, I think, at least once in the book, um, as an example, that it's a community that cares very highly about like the quality of the code and the security of um, you know, who's able to make contributions. And uh, so part of that problem where you we kind of have, Over the years, we've kind of seen open source software development as a commons and something that's just there and available. And I mean, part of the reason why I think there aren't as many contributors to each project is because a lot of these people are just contributing their free time. And they do that because... um, There, i don't think it's so much that in some cases maybe there aren't people who want to fund them but i think in a lot of cases it's just the barriers to funding contributors in a way that makes sense um has not had not really been possible until bitcoin and so i definitely think stuff to get developers funded and even exploring different ways of like you know how how much should you give to particular contributors? Is the maintainer getting all of it, and then they distribute it, or are you paying on like a per commit basis? I think that would that's going to be really interesting in the future if open source projects can get funded because we've broken down the kind of um, onboarding hurdles to doing so. Because I think people want to; it's just a struggle in a lot of cases to figure out how to do that. Um, like I myself. Uh, at the moment, I don't have any public facing funding options. Um, I'm trying to fix that. Um, but it is, uh, it is, is—it you know, a lot of people, they just set up like a cash app profile or something. There's, there's a lot of user experience. Uh, there's a lot of money being put into user experience lately with those kinds of things by big companies. Uh, the problem is, you know, these are essentially still bank accounts. So the people who can access them still have to go through the regular KYC process to do it. And so in that way, that still limits who can then get funded for contributing. So that would be unfortunate. But with with Bitcoin, we can do better than that.
1: I mean, that's some interesting, those are some interesting points there uh, in terms of of getting funding, a key aspect of of Bitcoin is that it enables developers who are unknown developers, developers who do not have their uh, their legal government identity publicly attached with working with this this open source project are able to receive funding. Um, we've We've seen multiple developers get funded from Square crypto, for instance. Um, that are nims that are that are located around the world um so so that is a, a, a new opening uh which is really good to see because I, we were talking about earlier the relationship between censorship resistance and privacy uh, i think it's extremely important that we have developers on on important projects like bitcoin that do not have their public identity associated with it it becomes a lot more difficult to pressure them and to stop working on that kind of code um, Especially in in situations where that code could get politically heated, uh, I I kind of I, I feel like this is a, a good moment to kind of discuss um, the this apparent Tor attack that we see happening, um, because Tor is considered you know one of the leading open source projects. I would I would argue, um, and it seems to me that there's a there's almost a completely different mentality in terms of adversarial mindset versus versus you know the Bitcoin project um, the Bitcoin open source project is that something that you've noticed Ben like do you, do you I, I feel like people grossly underestimate um, the, the basically the mindset that's gone into the motivation that's gone into developing Bitcoin the software.
4: Yeah. I think like a lot of people like kind of just assume Tor is a thing that will always work and like, and uh, you know, it's not something that needs to be defended. Like we, we, we like all agree, we need to defend Bitcoin, but like, I and mean, this week we kind of saw like all like the B3 Tor addresses were down and like tons of like services rely on that. And like you were commenting this on, um, somewhere saying like, you know, this could severely affect the lightning network and stuff like that. So yeah, like I think like, Hopefully this is like a wake up period for people like, you know, TOR is just as like probably as important as Bitcoin and like this is a network we need to defend and hopefully, you know, maybe this could incentivize people to like fund TOR devs or, um, you know, to contribute themselves. But yeah, it's it's pretty scary to see like uh, how big of an attack it seemed to be. And I don't think, I know they said they have a fix, but I don't even know if it's out yet. And it's been like two or three days now. So like it's been a pretty serious attack.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know I've mean? been following I've been following the developments of V3 just from a Bitcoin standpoint um in my newsletter cuz um V3 I believe is going to be added in the next major release of Bitcoin Core um instead of V2. Um, yeah, that's right. so I've been following yeah. And uh yeah, I haven't I haven't looked too much into this uh, recent problem with it. Um, I did notice it was happening because on the day that it supposedly uh, started, um, you know, I am a Tor user. Uh, I am around Tor users and so there was issues with Tor (laughs) and we noticed that immediately. Um, But yeah, I'm not, I haven't looked into the details as far as I saw, it was just an implementation bug. Um, But yeah. uh, I I mean part part of that is uh like I mean uh, supposedly you know also bitcoin core developers were looking at it but that is you know scary that something that a lot of people depend on for um just privacy in general and then in bitcoin financial privacy um that would be really bad if there was an issue that um suddenly took that down
1: I mean they so just I mean a, a... A base overview is is there was a bug um, that they appear to have you know narrowed down what what the bug was. I mean, the question is, it was it getting intentionally exploited by an attacker to bring down V three uh, services, or uh, was it just unintentionally done? Right, and I think in these types of situations, it's probably better to assume an attack than otherwise. Um, at least, I at least call it an alleged attack. Uh, but but one thing that really struck me here is i mean the, this these issues have been going on since the 6th of january um i've noticed these issues myself as a tour user i'm still noticing them it's not resolved uh at least i'm you know on my non scientific uh usage myself and i see other people on the internet reporting issues continue continuous issues here um and just like the the way the messaging was handled, right? Just like the way and I'm, you know, a huge fan of the Tor project, just the way the messaging was handled on on their official blog and their official communication channels. Uh it's just night and day from the Bitcoin project. Uh I, I I can't imagine um like radio silence out out of out of Bitcoin developers if there was an ongoing attack for multiple days.
3: I mean, I think part of it. Um, I mean, I've I've been following the Tor project outside of Bitcoin um, for various reasons, and there over the years there has definitely been a cultural change, and the number of the number and the type of people who are involved in contributing to Tor has changed a lot. Um, part of that is because it went from being a relative like when, when tor started out it was just basically a couple of guys um who were you know doing academic research and um as tor got more popular and got more attention um and also there was this desire to shift tor as much as possible away from this image of it's the darknet market browser um because that has been something that has uh followed Tor for a very long time and so there was a lot of there was a lot more focus on the interface design on user experience and making it really accessible to the everyday person as, much as possible which i think is a good thing in general um, but as with any project when you focus on one thing that means other things can suffer and I don't know if that was the case here but it that tends to be the reason for these types of things ha- happening it doesn't mean it can never happen if there isn't a focus um, on security uh, and things like that as the primary thing which i think it is to the greatest extent but um, i think that might be part of the reason that this might have gotten missed um, in terms of attackers i mean tor is a very uh it's a very highly visible project and there is a lot of incentive for people to break it in comparison to other things um so that's also part of the problem is that there are because there are so many vulnerable people who rely on it um there are also attackers who want to break it and hurt those people um so, you know, when things get missed, it can have, even if it's a small thing, it can have a big catastrophic effect compared to other projects that have less visibility.
4: Yeah, I was, I don't know, like the, the timing of it too, is like very weird too. Cause like this is, it happened on the same day that like the Capitol was stormed and everything. And it's, and it followed by, you know, all this, the uh, deplatforming platforming on various platforms. So, I and mean, it could, it could be completely unrelated, but like, and it's kind of weird to see like lots of people getting deep platforms, and then like the the private part of the internet getting like attacked at the same time. So like it kind of shows like we do need to fight for these like no matter what, because you know if you got deep platforms and now you need to be like using the internet privately for some reason, like uh, you could be and if Tor's down, you're like totally screwed.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's like that's that's the key similarity we see between the two projects, right? There are these two uh, massive open source projects uh, that that basically have have that have to operate in this massive a- adversarial mindset always because they're just always constantly you just have to constantly assume they're they're under attack. And I'm just all I'm saying is I just I feel like the culture is the The culture of the different communities is very important, and it it just kind of, um, it's kind it's kind of interesting when you compare the Tor culture versus, uh, like the Bitcoin culture, just from, uh, you know, the more active developers on those projects. Especially since there's there's some like interesting comparisons there. You you have the adversarial mindset comparison, but you also have the comparison um that you basically have like two different types of users um you you and And, I, and this is what janine like kind of touched on is like this idea that 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 tor is trying to get away from being you know the dark market browser um and and bitcoin a lot of people would say is trying to get away from being you know pigeonholed as as the dark market currency only um so I mean, there are some similarities there, but at the same time, it just feels like I, I I just I I was surprised that you don't see that much chatter going on in Torland of of I mean, you see it on on like some of these forums and stuff, but you don't really see it like in their in their dev community, like that that they're that they're worried that it all happened at the kind of the same time, and it's it's just weird. It's just a weird thing to to it was a concern I kind of had. And then to, to watch it play out, just kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. That's all. Um, so, and then the other thing I wanted to touch on was, uh, I saw this in the comments, uh, and freaks, thank you for joining us. Anyone who's here live, you know, thanks to everyone who's listening after, after the fact as well. Um, this shows all about you guys. Uh, we couldn't do it without you. Um, but I saw one of the freaks mentioned in here, uh, Cloudflare. Um, do you guys have any strong opinions on Cloudflare?
3: I, I have fuck Cloudflare stickers.
4: Um. <laughs> yeah, they have censored people before and they'll do it again. So can we explain what,
1: you know, what, what Cloudflare's business is and why it's a concern?
4: Um, from my understanding, Cloudfair is kind of like a DDoS protection. And then they also do like a bunch of DNS stuff and, you know, just like, oh, and then some hosting, I think as well. And like, they're a huge, like it's kind of central point of failure for the internet where like, I remember like, I think it was sometime in 2020 Cloudfair went down and like half the internet's like sites were down because like they rely on Cloudfair to do stuff like that. So i um, like, if, if you lose service from Cloudfair, you can lose a whole lot of stuff. Or, like if you lose your your DNS that could be huge because now someone needs to actually type in your IP address to ty- find your website or, you know, if you lose your DDoS protection, your site could go down pretty easily. So, I mean, so like, losing Cloudflare can be a, a huge thing. And I know the sites that have taken down, um, you know, they weren't the most upstanding sites. It was, like, a super, like, Nazi site or something like they took down. But it's still, like, if you don't defend these people, then who, who are you going to defend um, when they come for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the key aspect here is that the internet, as we know it, um, has, has some, you know, very integral broken incentives. Uh, and is, you know, it it is not this, you know, magic piece of, of networking that, that people necessarily think it is in today's age, right? Like people just think it just works. They think it's just like magic. Um, but what really is 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 happening is the the way it's set up is it's very easy for a a, a relatively easy for a sophisticated actor to essentially uh like bomb a site with traffic uh, and if you bomb a site with traffic this is what we call a a, a DDoS a distributed denial of service attack um you you basically hit them so hard that they're not able to serve regular customers, and in the process, it becomes very expensive to them. So they're constantly serving, serving, serving the attacker, and the attacker could maybe they're not even a lot of times the attacker isn't using their own compute; they're using compromised computers um, to then attack those those sites. So what happens is all these independent site owners, um, and I and we see it a lot with the Bitcoin exchanges. If we want to bring it back to Bitcoin rely on the the easiest way for them to handle those distributed denial of service is um, through a centralized actor who's able to basically have massive block lists and distribute any kind of traffic around their global network. They have have massive economies of scale that allow them to mitigate these DDoS attacks. Um, But what that means is, that's a centralizing incentive. So now we have a few companies that are offering this service and those companies become central points of failure. And it's kind of uh, tangential to the to the Tor concerns because Tor as a network that prioritizes privacy inherently has uh, DDoS concerns because you can't, um, you know, like if the protocol is working correctly, like you shouldn't be able to block individual users. Um, so, it's it's a, a and the way Tor handles it is they handle it with these centralized directories, and that's what was getting hit. Um, so usually, when we see these protocols, the way they handle distributed denial of service is they handle it via increased centralization. But as we know, that doesn't work if you're facing a a massive uh a, a, a master, massive massive pro censorship force. That it, you know has regulatory powers over you. Uh, so, like in in Tors in Tors threat model, they basically assume the U.S. government isn't going to go after them, uh, which has been good so far. It's in the U.S. government's good graces, and we, we take advantage of that. Um, Bitcoin doesn't have that luxury. Uh, so, so the way Bitcoin handles it is is pretty graceful. The way Bitcoin handles it is is essentially those transaction fees um, allow you to. allow you to mitigate a massive spam on the network uh, which would essentially be like a a ddos on the network it's very very uh it's just slick how how that incentive model is set up and I, i think people don't realize you know how massive that is
3: yeah and on that subject um both tor and uh ddos Um, The Tor project is actually uh, exploring using anonymous tokens. And when I say tokens, they did uh, specify that they don't necessarily mean with a blockchain. Um, it could be with something else. But they uh, have indicated, um, I think since September, that they are exploring using tokens. Um, not. I mean, they kind of hinted at possibly monetizing them, but that is not the main use case. I think uh, uh, I'll get their post. They say additional benefit of a token-based approach is that it opens up a variety of use cases for TOR in the future. For example, in the future, tokens could be used to restrict malicious, malicious usage of for exit nodes by spam and automated bots, hence reducing exit node censorship by centralized services. Tokens can also be used to register human memorable names for onion services. That is going side note that I think that's going to be a big one because if you've ever used a, if you've ever used an onion service, um, you know it's a basically a random generated string and that is not something that's easy to remember without pinning it somehow. Um, which is kind of hard to do in the Tor browser because it's built to not allow you to do things like that. Um, They can also be used to acquire private bridges and exit nodes for additional security. Lots of details need to be ironed out. Um, So yeah, they are looking at ways uh, within Tor itself of kind of solving that problem to change the incentives.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how they play around with those um with those different models because i think something does need to be done uh the incentives need to be you know if, if not a completely different network but i mean that's a completely above my pay grade uh i have a love-hate relationship with Tor, where i we rely on it all the time and i support the project uh but but i think it needs to be more robust and i hope it becomes
4: uh more robust over time um wasn't there a yeah, proposal mean, for a network, like, uh, some like routing, like basically like tour network, but it was using like lightning network. I think it came out like in 2019 it was like mesh 49 or something like that. Named I can't remember exactly.
1: Are you thinking of lot 49, but yeah, it, mesh labs.
4: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Cause it, there is like a, it was like a basically like a tour network, but they use like, um, basically like lightning to incentivize people to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the general concept,
1: I mean, I think their focus has, was more mesh uh, related, but I mean, you can you can do that kind of, you know, that kind of layout on a on like a non mesh infrastructure as well. Um, you know, the general idea, I mean, is and what we see on the lightning network, right, which is an onion network. Uh, where the individual nodes are incentivized to route messages, and if you're an attacker, it should come with a cost, right? And that cost is um, a transaction fee. Uh, so, so then, then you have an incentive where an attacker it, co- it costs more for an attacker than it costs for a, for a good user, and you can reduce the um, vulnerability to to these kind of you know large scale denial of service attacks. Um, but we'll see how that plays out um freaks you got anything else for us in the comments there you want us to touch on been really enjoying this conversation uh ben uh janine you got you have anything in mind that you think we should touch on here
3: um well one thing it was it was mentioned at the very beginning of the show someone brought up um rss um And I just wanted to point out, a lot of people don't know that um, Aaron Schwartz, uh, I'm sure most people know who Aaron Schwartz is, um, but a lot of people don't know, he was actually the uh, creator of RSS and Markdown. Markdown is what um, Git and particular GitHub, although it has its own flavor of Markdown, um, he was the creator of that. So I just wanted to bring that up because a lot of people don't know that
1: i have no so,
4: idea i think something good to bring up was uh where mozilla they were saying like we need more than deplatforming and like um they didn't explicitly say like censor the internet but they were saying you know bring up like trustworthy trustworthy voices or something like that and like it's so, like that's a pretty like kind of scary thing to see like i stopped using firefox after i saw that post where people like I don't know, your your browser should be like your your gate to the internet it shouldn't be like Telling you what to go on the internet and see, so I think like stuff like that is kind of scary too. Where like I think me and a lot of other people I know switched to like uh, like ungoogled Chromium, like an actual open source uh, browser, which is good to see, and um, hopefully that's a good trend we see going forward.
1: Well, I mean the browsers, you know, the browser situation is kind of fucked, right? Um, I, I well, you you were you mentioned uh googled Chromium, right?
4: Yeah, yeah. That's like uh it's open source and everything. You can It's like basically yourself, the only option at this point. Uh, yeah. And keep it deal. on your phone. So you're kind of screwed that way too.
1: Um yeah, so I mean, let's just backtrack here for a second and talk about there there's a concept here. There's this idea here that you can you can selectively filter out only bad content. And I I firmly in the camp that in order to protect the most vulnerable amongst us, you have to basically protect everyone in mass. Because if you don't, um, then then the powers that be in any individual power relationship will always um, exert that power and control over the more vulnerable. Uh, I, I, both of you agree, agree with that, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean that's the that's the the gap right that's that's where the the real
4: disagreement is would
1: you would you agree
4: I think so like uh you know like Mozilla and Firefox might have like good intentions today but you know 20 years from now they they might not and they could be you know using this to censor whatever they deem unworthy which could be like you know something that we deem perfectly fine and you know if that's not a good uh prescient dissent and you know these people could you know, like very well abuse this power or even if we trust mozilla they could be you know threatened by a third party like you know a a government or you know just a bad actor and uh you know screw over someone that you know needs uh, to use their browser for some reason or you know someone that was relying on that as infrastructure
1: well i mean i, I think us americans tend to have an american-centric view but if 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 it's it's easier for for an American and maybe do the same exercise if you're from another country to vision a country that you consider um, has poor human rights uh, and, and and if you if you're if you think about a country like China, um, I think most Americans would agree that we can't trust uh, the Chinese government with choosing who can speak and who can't speak. Um, so if if that is the threshold that that we agree on and we agree at that premise. How do we bridge the gap between understanding that as a concept, but thinking that, uh, I mean, I think a large amount of the country thinks like a a Twitter or an Apple can choose what, what speech is good speech and what's not like, how do we bridge that divide?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I find it really hard to answer that question because on the one hand, I believe in the idea that, you know, if you're a private person or a private company you're not beholden to you know what you're you know what you're kind of entitled to host or not host as a government is you know obligated to not censor people at least in countries like the U.S. but on the other hand a lot of these big platforms the reason they are so big is because the state makes it difficult for smaller players to to run, you know, their own infrastructure, especially infrastructure that's private and censorship resistant to any actual meaningful degree. Um, So it's really hard because that, you know, that's essentially where this kind of public square argument comes in is because they've effectively been given this kind of cushion by the state because of how they've, you know, because they were either first into the field, or because they had enough power from a you know resisting regulatory challenges um, in different ways to to kick out all of the competitors, or at least limit the ability of competitors to get any good user share. Um, I don't know. It kind of makes the question a bit murky to me.
1: I mean, I kind of feel like the only real solution is you know we build and support platforms that that no one can easily censor by design. And then we just kind of just wait till enough people get burned to realize that it's an issue because I don't know how how you how you get through to people uh, if without without them getting burned. like if if you look at this last week, um i i think a, a a large amount of people woke up to the issue and i think it's just kind of getting started i think as 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 more voices get uh squeezed as more people get cut off from the financial system um as more private information gets leaked people will start to ultimately realize that that they need to seek out better solutions
3: yeah, and I mean, weirdly I, enough, uh, weirdly enough, apparently Mark Zuckerberg um, at a conference in 2019 actually said, he actually said that he believes that the future of social platforms is private, which I find, I mean, he's the kind of person that says a bunch of things that are completely contradictory to the existence of Facebook <laughs> in so many ways. So I, I but I find yeah, it interesting I mean... that he said that.
1: He means perceived private privacy, right? And this idea that you can have, like, a group chat or something. But he he doesn't actually mean actual privacy um, because that yeah, goes I mean, against their whole business mode. But, yeah so, yeah, so this is actually a perfect example here, right? Is that people have been using WhatsApp for years. Facebook has owned WhatsApp for years. It's the, the number one chat application. Um, and all of a sudden, people realized um I guess there was like this mass movement recently, like this last week. I guess something changed in their privacy policy, or they had to disclose it because Apple forced them to disclose it. Um, and like a bunch of people woke up, right? And they just switched to Signal. But they, there was there's two key elements there, right? Is like the people need to wake up, but then once they wake up, there has to be something that's you know relatively easy for them to switch to. Waiting.
3: Yeah, and I yeah. think uh, I mean. Oh, you go ahead, Ben.
4: And the sad thing is too is like Signal's not even like a perfect solution. Where now like people might have to be giving up phone numbers to someone they otherwise might have not had to. So like we really do need like alternative solutions, which kind of sucks. But I mean, hopefully people are working on these things now.
3: Yeah, I'm. Um, I mean, I'm. I've used Signal before. Like I have a general. I don't use it anymore. I'm. I mean, I have i have a phone uh for circumstances where there's no other option but like it's almost never on um and yeah i find it uh as a as a generally phone-free person um i'm i mean i would say that in general i would trust signal a lot more than whatsapp slash facebook um but at the end of the day it's the same model and the model that i'm worried about is the fact that you know it's based on this idea that a phone number is an identifier and i really hate that because um phone numbers are not good identifiers you don't own them you don't control them especially if you're in the us your phone number can uh in most circumstances so easily be taken away from you um, just by knowing some small details and a lot of which is public um, in a lot of cases. So I, I just I'm not a fan of any application that requires a phone number to use it. Um, and in Signal's case, they are trying to get away with it, but so far, they are still justifying the requirement of the phone number as a security measure. Um, in fact, uh, they they say that it's a way to prevent spam, like their services is getting overwhelmed, or at least that's what they said before uh so related to that uh topic of yeah
1: it's a, it's a centralized kyc method of handling a denial of service
3: yeah well i mean i don't know if i would call it K- it's kind of debatable how much signal knows i mean the, the, I, well, if anyone doesn't know they store number? their stuff on amazon yeah i mean so the, supposedly the way that signal has designed their infrastructure they don't know your phone number um explicitly um but still that yeah so that data though is still being stored on amazon which i like so much so much is stored on amazon um i'm yeah in in terms of like centralized adversaries amazon's a big one for a number of reasons
1: so let's unpack this for a second i mean signal is obviously uh i mean ben said uh it's not perfect i mean it's clearly not perfect uh the, the two main things is the the phone number requirement and just the phone requirement in general I mean you can't uh you can run it on on a computer but you need to have a phone that basically is relaying the messages to the to the desktop client it's not a true desktop yeah. client um, and the yeah. phones in general are, are you know it's, it's very difficult to secure a phone privacy wise so you're opening up your users to to that risk but I think it's important to make it to it's it's an important point to make to the freaks that we're you're never everything has trade-offs you're never going to see something you're never going to see something that's perfect um signal can get de from aws just like we saw it happen to parlor uh they haven't though so if they can get away with a little bit of centralization uh for additional convenience um then there's an argument to be made there right that that Maybe that trade-off balance is the best balance for a lot of people. Like, uh, I mean, if you if you hear you hear Moxie talk about the phone numbers uh, with Signal's phone number requirement, and he says, you know, for the average user, they find it as a blessing. They they it, it's a convenience for them because the average user joins and they just already know which contacts are in Signal. And I mean, if you're an Android phone, it basically works like iMessage, right? Where you can use it as your regular text client and if if the other person has uh signal it just automatically switches to signal rather than sms Uh, so there's a convenience argument to be made there and i I think this is the type of trade-off balance that we basically see all the time in our day-to-day lives right
3: yeah i mean as uh i think it was a uh, coindes article about cypherpunks um, and there was a line in there that said something like uh, using signal is the equivalent of like s- uh, smoking uh, smoking weed once in college in terms of the cypherpunk ethos like it's a good <laughs> on board <laughs> um and i I would definitely say I would prefer s- people using signal to something like just plain text, SMS messages, uh, that's monumentally an improvement. Um, but in terms of censorship resistance at the end of the day it's not it's not any different um, especially with uh, the requirement of a phone number.
1: So if, if we're gonna go full you know full hardo here, right and you, you have if, if we end up in a situation where the most powerful governments in the world, um, and and the corporations that reside within their jurisdictions um, are are doing active censorship, right? You know, specifically Amazon. You know, if 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 Amazon starts um, deplatforming more private, like privacy focused services, such as Signal, we're gonna have to move to a Something that bitcoiners know very well, a use your own node model right like a almost like a personal server self host everything kind of model um that is always seemed like the holy grail uh you know to a lot a lot of sovereignty people, but I mean it comes with a massive convenience trade off right
3: yeah, I mean, I think the intermediate stage for something like that would just be you know especially if you live um, around people who have similar interests and needs, then you would have, you know, at least one person who is self-hosting, who then provides it for everyone else around. Uh, and to to answer the question, yeah. So in terms of encrypted messaging apps, I, I use a lot of different ones and I use them for different things and also even different people. So I have Keybase. Um, I've had Keybase for a very long time prior to it getting acquired by Zoom last year, I think. I can't remember exactly. Um, and I do yeah, it was definitely,
1: definitely think- it was definitely during the pandemic. Go on, continue.
3: Yeah. So I I know I can understand to some degree why they made that decision. I think in terms of the product that they're offering, I think it's like, on the completely opposite spectrum to what Zoom has shown that it's interested in in terms of privacy. Um, but at least the client, not the server, unfortunately, the server code, but the client for Keybase is still open source. I haven't seen any changes that would indicate something worrying on that end in terms of Zoom putting pressure on them to, I mean, even integrate Zoom. I think they said they might do that at some point, but it doesn't look like it was uh, looked on favorably at all. So I do. I am definitely concerned about the fact that Keybase is now is now owned by Zoom, and that may be a threat. And so I've always, even before that, though, I've always treated Keybase as kind of like encrypted Twitter DMs. So like whatever I would relatively feel okay saying in twitter dms i will say in keybase and maybe a little more than that but i don't use it for anything super sensitive i do think that they the fact that you know you can control your own key with it um you know that's independent of keybase you can also generate it with keybase that is not ideal but yeah i think it, it's all a matter of like what are what are the various options what can you use them for And what's the threat model in using them? So Keybase, I prefer people to use that rather than DMing me on Twitter, for example, where, you know, Keybase has this whole social network thing. So if someone wants to contact me, you know, it's someone that, you know, if they're following me on Twitter or whatever, then that's already public information. I'm not trying to hide that I'm connected to them or something. Um, So it's just that that's, I treat it like an encrypted version of Twitter, sort of. Um, but in terms of so, like your main app, definitely Keybase is not at the top of the list.
1: Yeah. So to the freaks listening to this on the podcast feed, um, one, one of our freaks, uh, Pedro, uh, he asked, uh, Janine what she thought about Keybase, which triggered that, uh, discussion right there. Um, you know, I tend to agree a hundred percent with what you said. I think an important thing for the freaks to realize here is that, that Keybase is open source software, um, You know, the code could have more eyes on it. Uh, You know, the more people looking at code, the better to keep them honest. Um, But it is designed in a way to be end-to-end encrypted. So the idea there is between the combination of end-to-end encryption and the fact that it's open source and you can verify it. um, It means that you don't have to trust the company that's running the servers uh, with the contents of that message. Which I think is a very important distinction. I mean, obviously there could be certain things that happen there, but but that's like the the base standard that I think we we wanna see in all of our tools and services that they're designed in a way to reduce trust in the overarching company as much as possible. Um and then they're open, the code's open so that we can actually prove and verify that.
4: Do you even mind though? Like, yeah, go on. Um to actually like do that entire proof to yourself too like you'll need to either build it yourself or you know like PGP verify your download and everything and not get the automatic updates and all that stuff, which is a huge barrier for entry to a lot of people that likely aren't doing that, which is another I mean, there's like, trade-offs everywhere,
1: right? Yeah, but, but I think as a base standard, if that's the expectation, um, ideally you have some people that are doing it, right? Um, so at least, you know, users might get fucked, but at least the alarm will be sound, you know, like uh, someone, I, it might be after the fact, it might be too late for someone. Uh, they've already lost their privacy or in the case of of, of uh, malicious Bitcoin software, maybe lost their coins, but uh, at, least, at least it would be known, right? Yeah, that's true. Like it's strictly better than if you compare it to something that's closed and not end-to-end encrypted. Oh, yeah 100 um before we got on that key base tangent janine you were saying something pretty interesting you had it i i was enjoying where we were going with that um i guess we were talking about we were talking about personal servers um and and the convenience trade-off that 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 entails
3: yeah i think, s- I think the last thing i said before i went to the key base question was about how I think the intermediary step will just be having, you know, a more localized, um, kind of community run thing where you know, the person who is self hosting the infrastructure and maybe they're, you know, they're the skilled one who knows how to handle that and they can, um, you know, an individual or a group of people who know what to do can, host for their local community or their friends. Maybe they're not living near each other physically, but I feel like that's the intermediary step because at the end of the day, most people, um, whether it's because they don't have the money to build up the infrastructure or the, the the knowledge to know how to do that properly. um, A lot of people, most people are not going to do that. So I feel like at least the intermediary step is going to be just, you know, a group of friends or, some families who know each other to do that together.
4: The uncle Jim model.
1: Yeah. The freak you know, the, model I, very
4: well. I think that's a, it's a good starting place too. Cause like, um, for, you know, for some people like getting a whole server rack is like, you know, it's completely untenable. Like yes, you like my mom did that, she'd, you know, just be like, I'm never doing this. So it, it is a good thing, like, if you do have that, you know, the quote-unquote uncle Jim to be able to set something up. And, like, you know, so- our hardware is getting cheaper and cheaper. Like, you can get a Raspberry Pi, like, three for, like, $20 or something. So, like, it it could be doable and, like, it's not exorbitantly expensive where it's not, like, you know, you're keeping a barrier to entry from, like, a lot of the, like, poorer parts of the world. But we do need to actually build that software. I don't know. I personally, I don't know any messaging that is like self-hosted, um, like the Uncle Jim model kind of thing.
1: Um, yeah, I mean i I've been kind of bullish on the Uncle Jim concept, uh, but when I talked to a lot of old timers, um, they were like, "That's kind of what you know." Everyone was always saying, and then it just turned into the cloud model. So I don't know if we're just like in our little bubble, but I think that that's kind of what we should try to achieve. Because I mean, as Janine said, like I don't think I, I don't think we can really expect that many people at scale. I mean, look, let's look at Bitcoin nodes, right? Which has like a massive incentive to to use your own node, right? Um, and very low burden. Uh, even with that, we don't see many people running that or using their own node. I mean, what, what do we think the upper end of that is? Max like a hundred thousand people.
4: Yeah, I think around there is probably right like uh and you know like like you said it's a huge incentive where you know you could lose like potentially like thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars if you're not running your own node. So, um it is kind of bearish for the the home node thing, but I mean if you do build like something or like a, something that people actually really want, you could like get people over there. But I mean, we need to actually build that which hopefully someone does
1: but but overall ultimately that's where we want to go we want to go to easy self-hosting make it as easy and and accessible as possible um and allow people to basically operate as as like a localized cloud if you will uh for for either their neighborhoods or their friends and family um and then all of a sudden you have a way more distributed model uh that that is more censorship resistant so that that would be absolutely fantastic to see um, and that's what I've been dedicating, like a lot of my time to, is is these, you know, sovereignty boxes, if you will. Um, but I mean, I, on top of that, I mean, you still have major infrastructure issues. That even if you have the self-hosted box in people's homes, um, I mean, we just go right back to the Tor conversation, right? And then you're relying on Tor actually working. Um, otherwise, like you can't, you can't make that 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 future doesn't happen without Tor. As it stands right now, it's it's fully reliant on Tor, or right. hopefully we have you know either Tor 2.0 or a a new a, a new protocol in place. But but right now, as it stands, we need Tor for it, right?
4: Also, like you back to like your very first conversation, you get back to like the app stores could censor you if you wanted to like make it usable from the phone, unless you like sideload the app onto your phone, which you know you're not going to be able to get the normie to do. So like you still have another sensor this is where like.
1: I feel like we get ourselves into holes, you know, like here we are uh, an hour and a half into the conversation. Right. And, and we talk about all these, you know, more intimate things or these more sophisticated things. And, and and ultimately the sheer fact that you can sideload an app on an Android phone is a massive improvement over something like iPhone. Right. And how, how many people have actually sideloaded an app or needed to. Right. Um, there's just like, it's just a lot of nuance. There's nuance everywhere. Yeah. Um, So I have a question from a freak in the comments, Peloponnesian shout out to you. Uh, Number one privacy book to read from both of you. Start with Janine.
3: Uh, i can go first um so my i wouldn't i I, it's it's really hard for me to say which is the number one book so i'm just going to go with one that i I think is really good and kind of undervalued which is um, a book called the maximum surveillance society the rise of cctv by clive norris and gary armstrong it was written uh long ago enough that it's actually i think it was 1999 that it's um actually available on the internet archive um which you can loan from. They have a book, a digital book lending program. So if you want to read it, it is freely available, but I recommend that one because it was written, you know, in the er uh, relatively early days of the internet. Um, And I think it has a lot of good points about, um, you know, privacy at a point where, you know, we, we were really considering it from so much the, uh, you know, the the apps and services and such, we were thinking, or at least he was thinking about it from uh, the standpoint of just cameras um, everywhere, which is, I mean, the classic image of surveillance is a camera. Um, and I guess that was the starting point for much bigger things where we're now putting the, we're doing 1984 all on our own by putting the cameras and microphones in our own houses of our free will. <laughs>
4: Uh, I would recommend No Place to Hide by Glenn Greenwald. It's about um uh, Glenn Greenwald's a guy that broke the story about Edward Snowden, the NSA and all that stuff. And it gets really into um you know like how perverse like the US's uh surveillance state has really become and talks about like you know, like why this could happen and how they do this and it's like it's a really good read and you know it's pressing for the current times and you get to learn all about Snowden.
3: Yeah, on the subject of uh, usability, there's a great story in there. Uh, if anyone doesn't know, when uh, Snowden was uh, trying to get in contact with Glenn Greenwald, um, Glenn was not really using PGP at the time. And so uh, Snowden was like, he, uh, he includes in the book the fact that, and I think Snowden also wrote about it in his book. Um, but yeah, Glenn includes the fact that like he uh, frustrated his source by not using PGP. <laughs>
1: I mean, so I mean, like PGP is like a perfect example um, of of the trade off balance that we were talking about earlier, right? Is because PGP has been around for a long time. Um, I mean, and if used properly, it solves uh, private messaging. Uh, but the problem is, it's so inconvenient to use. You know, it's, it's it's so inconvenient to use. Period, and it's even more inconvenient to use in a secure fashion. Um, that it just hasn't had the kind of uptake and then so you compare that to something like signal and and people 100% agree that pgp is a pure one right but signal's the one that probably has sent more encrypted messages than than all the years of pgp combined but I appreciate those book recommendations i mean i the easy one is extreme privacy um by michael Basil. um everyone should give that a read that's a good one um what else do we have here? We have a couple more questions. Twitter Exodus to Mastodon. What do you guys think about Mastodon?
3: Um I mean, I've had a I've been on the Bitcoin hackers Mastodon instance since at least a year, I think. Um I mean, I don't I don't post too much on Twitter, um anyway, and usually yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't fully moved to Mastodon, but I definitely um, recommend people should go there. Just because, I mean, one thing, the the character counts a lot bigger. So if you want to do your massive threads, that's a lot easier on Mastodon. Um, I also cross post my newsletter there as well.
4: I've been liking Mastodon a lot. Um, hopefully, this this time is different, TM, and uh, people actually stay. <laughs> But uh it's been good. like uh, it' kind of feels like more like the Bitcoin hang where you know we don't need to like fight with central bankers or Peter Schiff or whoever. We just hang out and share Bitcoin memes and talk about things we actually care about. But yeah, it's it's been good. I, I I've been looking into like maybe setting up my own instance too because I feel like that'd be a really fun experiment, and I hope other people try that out too.
1: Um, so I mean, that's kind of it's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, I'm also over there in the bitcoin hackers instance uh mastodon had been there for a couple of years i think people look at it the wrong way i don't think it competes with twitter um i think these these centralized platforms allow you to you know like twitter these massive centralized platforms let you cheaply uh and easily broadcast out to the world um and at at the cost of censorship resistance um so Mastodon's actually really interesting based on the trade-offs we've been talking about. Um, because it kind of does sit in the middle there. Uh, anyone can run their own instance, uh, which is basically a node, uh, their their own server. Um, and they can either use that themselves or they can Uncle Jim it and they can have other people use it, right? And and you can, you it's a federated model so you can interact across those instances. So it provides some competition um in a more open environment uh with with the ability as ben said is you can just run your own instance all by yourself and that could just be then all of a sudden we're in the personal server model right um so so it it is a pretty cool project um it should be interesting to see how it plays out i'm i'm kind of cautiously optimistic at all these different uh like open source social media derivations, you know, and, and hopefully we can move away from these massive centralized platforms because it's gotten it's gotten really, really bad in that respect. Um, Randy McMillan, yes, does mention GPG Suite on Mac did change the game in terms of using PGP. Um, but I mean, people shouldn't use Windows, but it's, it's a pain in the ass on Windows. It's actually pretty easy on Linux, but I mean, when people see the command line, they get scared. And I think it's important that people realize that the UX is almost as important um, as the actual what's going on in the tech in the background. You know, you, you need, because with privacy, it's just so easy to shoot yourself in the foot, especially. Um, so if, if, if a tool is set up in a way where it's possible for a user to shoot themselves in the foot, you got to assume that most users are going to do it. Um, yeah, 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 sorry about that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I just want to thank you guys for joining the conversation. Uh, I respect both of you a lot and that's why I asked you here for the fourth episode of this new show. Um, sorry, it got off a little bit slow here. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to, to get used to this format, uh, especially in a cabin in the woods when my internet is, uh. We were talking about intermittent connections earlier. Yeah, that's what I'm experiencing. Uh, and I wanted to thank the freaks for joining us again, especially the freaks that are joining us live, but also to all the freaks that are going to listen to this after the fact. Um, we're going to have another episode of Citadel Dispatch next week, same time, 5 p.m. 2200, 5 PM Eastern Time, 2200 UTC on Tuesday. Um, we're going to have Rabbit Hole Recap on Thursday uh, at 5 p.m., I believe. Also going to be a live show. Um, so definitely show up for both of those. Uh, we'd love to have you. Um, Janine, Ben, I appreciate you guys a ton. Uh, I'm going to throw up for our, our our viewers. I'm going to throw up your your Twitter tags. Those are also their tags on Mastodon. At J9ROEM and at Ben the Carmen. Um, thank you guys for joining us.
4: Thank you it's fun to be Thank
1: here.
3: Thank you. I'll start from the beginning.
0: That's why I I love love the moon Every night it's there for you It's constant Unlike these human beings be
1: Freaks, stay humble, stack sets.